welcome to Resolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you listening, this podcast is brought to you by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. Our hosts serve as interlocutors, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Caroline Stauffer, and I'm one of your hosts. Today, I am speaking with Sharon Press, Judge Juanita Freeman, and Kelly Mitchell about Mitchell Hamlin's project called Truth and Action, Addressing Systemic Racism in the Criminal Justice System in Minnesota. Welcome, Sharon Press, Judge Juanita Freeman, and Kelly Mitchell to ABA Resolutions. It's a pleasure to have you here today to talk about truth in action. Thank you for uh, having us. Much appreciated. We're looking forward to a good chat. Excellent. Me too. And one of the things that I love about this project is it is about changing minds through the heart. And part of doing that is talking about lived experience. So before we talk about the project, I wanted to have our listeners hear a little bit about your lived experience and what brings you to this project. So um, I am the director of the Dispute Resolution Institute at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. And this idea for the project, our experience here in Minnesota in the summer of, well, May 2020, when George Floyd was was murdered. Like people all around the world, uh, it was really very devastating to see that happen yet again. And for me as director of the Institute, one of the questions that arose was, What is it that I can be doing to change what's going on? And it was particularly salient for me because I had been involved in a project with um, the city of Falcon Heights after Philando Castile was killed. And it was a community engagement project. And by all accounts, we did a very extensive evaluation project as a result of it. And it was a very successful project. There were lots of really positive outcomes. And yet, four years later, nothing had changed. And so it occurred to me that doing individual projects where people, communities may even experience some healing, don't accomplish what it is that actually needs to happen until we address systemic change. And so the full name of this project is Truth in Action, Addressing Systemic Racism in the Criminal Justice System in Minnesota. And it's a very big project, a very lofty goal, but the idea was until we address systems and what is happening systemically in our criminal justice system, we are going to continue to see the same kind of murders and have continued really to see the same kinds of things continue. So um, that was that was the, the bold idea um, behind this project. And uh, one of the first things we did was to reach out, um, me along with my uh, co-convener, uh, Kitty Atkins, who's the Associate Director of the Dispute Resolution Institute, to create an advisory committee 
And two of the early people who we reached out to and joined were uh, Judge Juanita Freeman and Kelly Mitchell. And I'm just thrilled that they are available today also to talk a little bit about the work that they do um, and what brought them to the project. I'm very grateful for all the work that they've continued to do in the project. Well, thank you so much for sharing. And I hear from your lived experience that you had some type of project like this before. It made you think about what we can do at this moment to create a change systemically through the justice system. And I would like to invite Judge Freeman to share what role you play in the project and your lived experience that brings you to this project. Sure. Uh, When someone comes to you and talks about making what is known, which is systemic racism, problems that are so engrossed and ingrained in our system of justice, which is racism, the disparities, and not just wanting to deal with the data, but wanting to actually put action attached to the data, they had me at hello. Um, And I think I might have told them something along those lines. Anything that is going to make our system better, any way that we can infiltrate our system to hopefully bring light to some of the disparities and inequities and ultimately eliminate them, I am more than excited to be a part of it. My story or my lived experience is that I worked as a prosecutor for my career. I seen firsthand a lot of issues within the system from a prosecutorial lens. And then after being appointed uh, to the bench from an even different, let's say, perspective, if you will, although some of it is consistent with what I've observed over the years. And my role in life has always been to make the world better than I found it. It sounds a little cliche, but it is truly how I live my life. And I thought this program is going to make Minnesota, and ultimately, if it catches wind um, across the nation, better than we found it, because we're going to do something rather than sit idly by and look at the statistics and realize that, oh, we know these things exist, but instead we're going to put actions to it. We're going to put real people to it and stories to it. So my role was really to be a vessel with whatever information institutionally I might be able to provide, as well as insight from my lived experience, from my background in the legal field, as as well as my new role as a judge um, over the last four years. And then as a result of that, I am one of the co-chairs of the data collection group. Um, So that is my specific role in addition to being a member of the advisory board for the entire project. As a prosecutor, were there times when you felt things really hit at home with certain ideas? Um, Everything hits at home when you're a prosecutor. Um, I'm a black woman, it's a podcast, so I don't, I guess maybe people can't see that. Um, But as as a black woman, when you're working in a system of justice that is disproportionately Um, disadvantaging the group of which you identify, everything hits home. Every day, every case, whatever the case may be. Um, So when you say, does it hit home for me? This is my lived experience. I've had family members, friends, community members involved in the system and had some experience one way or the other, favorable or unfavorable with the system of justice. Um, We also have to remember that disproportionately victims of crimes are also black and brown folks. And those individuals, those victims need voices and they need people who they can relate to um, to help them hopefully uh, rejuvenate or establish a trust in the system of justice to bring peace and end some of these things. So when you say, 
does it hit home? It, this is my home. Um, I chose this career for the reason that you just mentioned. There is a connection to it. I want to make a difference. I want to be a public servant because I think it's critical. And I think that's what I was placed here to do. Absolutely. Thank you for a- answering so candidly. We look forward to hearing how you make this world a better place than you found it later in this podcast. You know, you mentioned something about Sharon saying making this project is about the truth and then an action piece. And you said you love the action piece, which is basically saying you had me at hello. And so Kelly, this is where I ask you, where did they have you at hello? Um, it was it was pretty similar uh, for me. So, you know, I'm the director of the Rabina Institute of Criminal Law and Criminal Justice at the University of Minnesota. And our work is, you know, research aimed at improving sentencing, probation and parole like that. That's what we normally work on. Um, and we do that on a national scale. But in Minnesota, you know, because we are grounded in Minnesota, we really go we really do work in any area of the criminal justice system. And so when Sharon called, number one, I was like, it would be irresponsible not to take part in this project because, you know, we we were here, we lived through the killing of George Floyd. I felt helpless, I'll be honest. I felt helpless during that period of time when I saw the impacts on our community and I definitely wanted to, to get involved and do what I could do. And so to have the opportunity to bring the institutes to bring our resources to bear on this issue was extremely inviting. But one of the other things that we do at the Institute is we try to always involve the voices of people who are affected by the system in our projects. And so when Sharon told me that, you know, one of the primary goals was to actually hear the stories of people and to pair that up with the data, not just rely on data to describe disparities, but to also hear people's stories and understand the real pain points and what was really what their experiences really were to help inform the recommendations that we would make at the end. That's when she had me at hello. I mean, it was that's that's really the power here is is to get people to hear what is the actual impact of our system on the citizens of Minnesota. It's not you know not trying to bury that, not trying to you know do a quick fix. Uh, oh, we changed one thing, uh, so we're we're good now. But really, lifting up the voices of people who are impacted by our system every day. Yeah. So um, you know, to just to say uh, a couple of other words about you know sort of what did I think that the Dispute Resolution Institute could do? Sure. Um, because we're really not experts in criminal justice system. Both you know, Joshua and Kelly have you know far superior expertise in understanding and in working with um, the criminal justice system. But I did know that what the Dispute Resolution Institute could do was convene. And so that was what we really set out to do, was to identify who were people who actually were understood the system, were involved in the system, both in, in people who had the ability to make change themselves. So both county attorneys, for example, from uh, Ramsey and Hennepin, the two counties in which uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul sit, are on the advisory group. 
But I also wanted to include, in addition to judges and experts in data analysis like Kelly, people who were had been involved in the justice system, had been people affected by the justice system. And so the advisory group is actually quite large. You did hear mention that we have a data collection group. We also have a story, story collection group. We have a community engagement group. So we did break out into some smaller um, working groups. And really, I see the role of the Institute, uh, me and Kitty, as being um, sort of the hub to um, keep the, the various groups working, running, and talking with each other in order to move the project forward. And ultimately, um, as Judge Freeman so um, eloquently said, it was absolutely critical that this be an action project. We didn't want this just to be a truth and reconciliation project. We purposely chose the name as truth and action because if we don't end up with action, if we don't end up with change as a result of all of this work, it will not be a success. That is the ultimate. There were a lot of divided ideas during that time. And was there any pushback from others that you wanted to bring onto the board? Or was it as easy as identifying the players that have the experience that you knew had a type of involvement in the justice system? Was it easy to get that board together? If they didn't accept it was... I've already got you know too much on my plate, or I'm already doing something else in this area. But in terms of people being willing, it was very much what both Kelly and Judge Freeman described. When we called and we talked to them, I was just so incredibly grateful for people who stepped forward and said, "Absolutely, I want, I want to do something. I want in, and I'm willing to be a part of it." That's excellent. So when it came to collecting data and information, what did that process look like? No, I can just chime in for a second and then let um, Kelly and, and Sharon talk. So myself and another person, Otis Sanders, are the chair of the data committee. And I, I say that with the understanding that that's our title, but really a lot of the work came from Kelly and Robina with their awesome data analysis what our first step in the process was to figure out what is the data we want to be able to illuminate and identify. Because the data is out there, you had to be focused. I mean, you can get to, I remember actually Kelly saying early on in one of those planning meetings, you know, this stuff is voluminous. We have to be able to narrow our focus on what it is we want to do. So we had several meetings where we drafted kind of questions we wanted the answer to. And the answer was the data. And then after we got the data, analyze it from there. So that was the first step in the process of narrowing our focus from inception into the criminal justice system, through the court system, post-disposition, all of those kinds of things, and where we wanted that track to go, and then identify who we needed to get the information from. And as Sharon has already mentioned, some of it already existed. And so we needed to not re reinvent the wheel, but go back to those folks and say, hey, we want that too. And that was part of our process. And then we had the great assistance slash directive of Rubina who helped really with the analytical side as well and the getting some of the data too. So I'll let Kelly address more if you want Kelly. We had to make a choice early on 
between, you know, whether we wanted to follow one group through the criminal justice system and get sort of like the overall impact on a cohort of people at every stage, or whether we wanted to go to each individual or whether we wanted to collect data at each stage that was more of a snapshot in time of over a, a period of time. And we chose the latter approach. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, it, you know, it would have been really difficult to identify a group of people that we really truly could have followed from, you know, the moment of the police encounter all the way through service of their sentence. You know, that takes a couple of years, especially in uh, if you're talking about felonies. So the the odds that we'd be able to get the data all the way through the system were kind of low. Number two, I have to be honest, we didn't know if every agency would allow us to get the data. It's public data, but that doesn't mean that they will necessarily get it for you. But but right. data is scattered throughout the system. So, right, like arrest data is in the police department's database. The process, the charging decision is, is in the prosecutor's database. And there's prosecutors at different levels of the system. So we've got prosecutors that do felonies at the county level. We've got prosecutors that do misdemeanors at the city level. So, you know, the, the data is in different places. The courts have their own data. Uh, the, the corrections department has their own data. So we weren't sure that we would confidently be able to follow a cohort through the system in the time frame that we wanted to do this project. So instead, we chose to go to each system. So we're not following the same people. We're taking a snapshot of data at all the different criminal justice points, the major ones. So we're looking at disparities of arrest, disparities at the, at the charging decision, disparities in uh, case dismissal rates once the person's in court, disparities in sentencing, disparities in probation, revocation outcomes, those sorts of things. And that's where we have an opportunity to try to figure out if those differences have statistical significance. And it's, you know, it's a little bit harder to do it there. It's a little bit harder to, to really say that with, uh, to, to say with confidence what's causing disparity when you're taking a snapshot approach because you don't have all the other variables to help explain the outcome. But what we're working on is trying to paint a picture from arrest through the end of the sentence to see, well, at least we can tell where the disparities are the greatest and are they growing or contracting as you look at those different stages through the system. And, and we think that's going to be some really meaningful information for Minnesota when we have that all done. What I was going to add, and one thing that could have screw, screwed up this project slash skewed data is the pandemic. And we talked at, at length about the snapshot of time that we were going to utilize as a result of it, because I don't know what it was like, you know, where you are, Carolina and California, but for us, it was serious. When the pandemic hit, nothing like this obviously had happened in any of our lifetimes. We had to shift how we did court. We had to shift a lot of things. Law enforcement wasn't doing breathalyzer testing, for example, because of how the breath test is administered. All of that would impact our data and our results if we included the year 2020 and beyond in it. So we had some discussions about that. We specifically talked about that and knew that 2020 would not be an adequate representation of anything we were trying to draw from because it is such kind of an 
odd year. And then years have continued to be odd after that and creating this, you know, new normal of how we do court now. So uh, I just thought that you wanted to know that our focus was specifically to exclude things that would have been extremely inconsistent just based on the circumstances and the nature of the pandemic. Yes, and I thought that would be very important to share. And thank you for adding the clarity for our listeners, because yes, here in Los Angeles, you know, we get a lot of information and we need a question. And, and I'm, we know that the people will question, where is this data coming from? Can I believe it? And what is it going to do? So I think this is setting precedent what you all are doing because it is an, there is an actionable. It's not that it just stops once we have the story or the data. And if you recall, I did ask about the lived experience you have. And I think this is the perfect time about, Kelly, you mentioned you receive data through through time. And, and could you guys clarify the time period that you looked at for this data and also share how does the live experience, the stories that people tell Mary with the data? Well, so I'm going to address two points there. So one thing, first of all, because Judge, as Judge um, Freeman mentioned, we knew that the pandemic was not going to be a representative year so we initially asked for a five-year period that included the pandemic, but went before it and after it. We didn't necessarily get that five years from all of the places that we asked for data. So I think in the end, our final report is really going to focus on the period of 2017 through 2019 because we were consistently able to get that data. One thing I also want to mention is that I mentioned earlier that we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get the data. And I was honestly shocked and also very heartened that every agency we went to was willing to work with us on this project. The prosecutor's office, we at both at the county and city levels were the first ones to give us their data, believe it or not. I mean, that was amazing. That was that was just that was so that was wonderful to see that they were really open and actually interested in understanding the outcomes themselves. The police departments also were forthcoming with their data. Nobody held back there all throughout the system. There has never been a point where anybody refused to work with us. And that was not that has not been my experience on a national level. So it was it was really amazing to see here. And then I I lost the thread of the last question that you asked. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. Question. Actually, I think this is perfect because I'm I'm getting this from your website. And it says here, after gathering and analyzing both the qualitative stories and quantitative data, work groups will focus on each of the areas of the criminal justice system, law enforcement, prosecutorial and defense attorney discretion judicial discretion, corrections, probation, and reentry. And I think that is a beautiful thing to see because it's a collective. It's not focused on one particular agency. And I want to share this because I think when we talk about systemic racism, we automatically subconsciously go to law enforcement. I think that's a, a big thing. So to know that this project is looking at a collective and not on a singular entity is a big deal. And I think that is where I think Sharon, you're, you are about to share how this qualitative data 
really marries with the quantitative. So one of the things that we wanted to do was to make the data come alive, because as I said, you know, our premise was, look, we have known that there is a problem of disparity in our criminal justice system for a very long time. It's really not a debatable question. People know that that is true. They, they debate the reasons for it, so sure, sure. there, there is that piece, but the disparities, it, it is known. And what hit me as I reflected on the public outpouring around what happened to George Floyd was that he became, he was a fully formed person that we we got to see and know and learn about. And, and it was just impossible for any of us to turn away once we saw that this was not just some statistic of how many people in police custody something bad happens to. No, this was a living, breathing human being. And it was, it, it struck a chord in people. And that was what I wanted to um, sort of create in this project was the ability for people to not just read data as numbers, but to read data and see people and understand that these were real people and what they had gone through. And so the goal was to collect stories from people who had been involved in the criminal justice system in some way. And we, we didn't want to limit it. We didn't say, you know, anybody who has a bad story or anybody who um, had a problem at a particular level. It's just we want to hear your story. So there are some people who shared positive things like, you know, the ability to get to diversion. I will note that that, that was one of the few white people who joined our project to tell a story. We didn't hear that same kind of opportunity offered to um, many of the black and brown folks that we talked to. But the idea then was to be able to take those stories, those lived experiences and combine it with the data. So that when you talked about a data point, we, there would be a story that would go along with it. So people would understand the pain. This is what it looks like in someone's life when that happens, which is quite disturbing and I hope will have the effect of uh, that same effect of not being able to turn away and not being able to say, oh, okay, well, you know, that's just the way things are. But to to motivate people to say, yes, action, change is needed. At that time, we learned more about George Floyd. We learned more about the justice system. And in this project, Truth in Action, what were those disparities that you found in your analysis? We're still we're still working on it to get the full picture, right? But the sort of unmistakable finding that we have is that disparity is present at the time of arrest, and it's pretty stark. I, I don't have the, the numbers in front of me, but the majority of individuals who are arrested in Minneapolis and St. Paul are Black. And there's a percentage of people who are Native American relative to the population as well. We actually have a pretty robust Native American population in Minnesota. That's one of the unique characteristics of the state. Um, and so that group is also overrepresented from the start. 
So if I if I were to look at the statistics on the front end and the back end, they look very similar. That we have large disparities for people who are Black and Native American coming in the door to begin with, and then large disparities in all the outcomes throughout the system. So we are going to see that in the final analysis. What I can't tell you yet is whether there are certain points in the middle there that might make those disparities better or worse. And can I add just one other clarification, um, Carolyn, that it would, the data we got on arrests was from the police departments. So it wouldn't, we don't run the risk of that we are collecting, that we're, we're basing arrests on sort of a mixed bag of who is doing the arrest. That data comes directly from the police departments. And then that's specifically from St. Paul and Minneapolis. Correct. Judge Freeman, do you see that there are these unjust practices that you take another look at when they come to court? At every stage of the justice system, there is a, some sort of fork in the road is the way that I always like to describe it to people. When an officer decides to have an interaction with an individual, there's the decision whether or not to arrest them or not, right? For whatever the reason is, some of which is based in law, others is officer discretion. Then there's another level of uh, once a crime is committed and a person allegedly is either in custody or not, it's whether or not to submit the case for the consideration of charges. That's on, again, a law enforcement decision or their discretion. Another fork in the road. The answer is yes, we'll submit this case to the city or the county prosecutor, or the answer is no, we won't. A lot of law enforcement agencies have policies and procedures in place about cases that they are mandatorily required to submit for consideration of charges. And then you get to the next gatekeeping mechanism, which is the office of the prosecuting agency. And that is another fork in the road where you have the big monster of prosecutorial discretion, which is what Kelly was talking about. And I think what you're getting at, um, Carolyn, as well, which is how do you decide whether or not what you see amounts to something that should result in a criminal prosecution. Yes. And that is the discretion that comes to based on office policies of the Minneapolis City Attorney's Office or the Hennepin County Attorney's Office or the St. Paul City Attorney's Office or the Ramsey County uh, Attorney's Office, which is Ramsey County is St. Paul, so that you understand that. And it sometimes can lie on the eye of the individual, um, whoever that prosecutor is. You know, there are cases you would like to hope that there would be more consistency, right? That's what we all hope is that if prosecutor A, B, and C all review the same case, they would all result in the same decision, right? That doesn't always happen. A, B, and C are three different people. And so A, B, and C may view those facts differently and may actually charge different crimes or decide not to charge at all for whatever the reason is. Our system builds in that level of discretion. And so that is the biggest gatekeeping mechanism that then decides which fork in the road the case goes to, which is either in court because charges have been filed. And now we're in this court process where we put the system of justice involved, our actual court system, system of justice portion, or it's you know diverted out. You've heard diversion now mentioned where uh, the case stays out of the system and there's a probationary period and things that people have to do to keep the case out of court. Or it's not charged at all because the prosecutor says, I'm declining to charge it. All of those things happen. But from a court standpoint, 
we don't see the case until all of those forks in the road. And so that's why it's that's very quite critical. a bit of quite a bit of forks. Quite a bit of forks. And and I try as I can to explain that to people by the time it gets to us. But I you can also consider it to be checks, right? If there was a problem, a constitutional violation, racism, whatever it is, you hope that at some point in each of those forks that somebody catches it, right? And stops it from going further down the chain. That's always the goal. I have a question and this may kind of digress from what we're talking about, but I want to talk a little bit about our brains here. How much of this do you think that is our system one, the lazy brain? We're just going through the motions. Oh, I've seen this before. Oh, my years of experience. I know what this is and not so much system two really stopping, thinking, analyzing, and seeing if there's something more to this? I think, I think that's a very loaded question, but my, my short answer. <laughs> that's what I'm here for, Judge Freeman. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that about you. That's nice. My short answer would be, we would always hope that every person at every stage of the system of justice is using their analytical part of their brain, that system two that is fact specific to the individual and the circumstances. That's what we'd like to hope. Now, the reality is how can you think about part two without realizing your lived experience of part one impacting that, right? Mm -hmm. And I can tell you case law actually supports a training and experience analysis, especially for law enforcement, if based on their training and experience, they believe X, Y, or Z. So part of it is system two has to actually engage with that system one of the brain that you just mentioned, because that's what is actually used in the evaluation of whether or not something happened is or is not lawful. So I don't think you can take one without the other. But the idea is you still judge the individual, the analytical basis should be these individual facts. Only your experience, I should say, is only hoping to shift your idea of whether or not you believe something different actually happened after you analyze the individual circumstances. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a hard question that has an impossible answer, which is we hope that it's an individual analysis. I think that's the goal. I think this is so important. Thank you so much for the work that you are putting into this project. There is a question that I have, and for everyone here, really, in the website, Mitch Hamlin was a video about truth in action. And it talked about the commitment, a commitment to the justice system. And I kind of want to pose that question to you all is what commitment could all these entities, and you talked about forks in the road, Judge Freeman, what commitment should everyone take that partakes in the justice system? What new commitment should be involved? I can start. I think that what every agency ultimately needs to think about is, you know, we've been doing it a certain way for a long time, and we've known these disparities have existed, and they haven't changed. So, it's got to be partly on us as an agency. Like, I think that agencies need to think about what are their actions that are contributing to the continued disparities that we see in our justice system. And it's going to take big changes to, ch to move the needle on that. We can't just continue to make 
little policy changes here and there, that's not enough. We kind of have to break our system down a, a little bit to build it back up in a way that is more just and more fair. Yeah, I love that. You know, um, and, and I actually totally support all of that. And, and I'm going to go in a in another direction and, and suggest that one of the things that I have learned in the story collection is the importance of individuals, of an individual interaction, of an individual who showed they cared, an individual who was willing to step forward and to continue to fight for somebody to um, have access to something else. So a, a, an ability for somebody to break that cycle. And so in addition to everything that Kelly says, which is on um, that systemic, and I am totally, absolutely, 100% believe all of that. And for individuals who are listening, don't dismiss the power that you have to impact someone's life. Thank you. Judge Freeman, you get last. I don't have anything else to add. I totally agree. I mean, I was, I agree with what Kelly's saying. I think, I think the idea behind um, making change is a scary thought for all of these agencies for a variety of reasons. I think when you look at what has happened in our country, over the last several years following the murder of George Floyd, which illuminated a problem that many of us were aware of long before George Floyd was murdered, or even my former classmate, Philando Castillo was murdered, or all the other people that I could start to name now. Many people were aware of it, but we have a unique circumstance now with this program, Truth in Action, or this initiative, I should say, and society as a whole is to don't let this momentum pass us by. That, that's what's critical. Because those of us who've known and who's lived this heartache before, who've seen it firsthand and been involved in the system and cried those tears, we've done it for years. And now that everybody can see it, this is our opportunity to start addressing things. So we can't let another life tragically close at this scenario in our time and miss it. That's what I would say is that the time for action, the reason why we're doing truth in action amongst other initiatives is because the time has to be now. The right kind of mindset to change, whether or not it's on a macro level or a more micro level, right? 100% agree with what Sharon said, because you said earlier, Caroline, you'd circle back to how I think I'm making a difference each and every day, how we think we're changing the world. It's on that level. Anybody who appears in front of me in court, I need to understand it's that person's time. I'm talking to them as an individual. I want to know what, if anything, I can do to make their life what it needs to be, whatever that is. If it is just simply listening, the power of listening is real. And we miss it at all of those different forks in the road that I just described. As a judge, my main job responsibility, if anybody ever asks me, is to listen. That is our focus. And I think this program is literally at its core shaking the branches of all the non-listeners and saying very clearly, listen, because that is what is going to be critical. So true. And there's so many things that you just said, Judge Freeman, that I would love to spend another hour talking about, maybe even two. But as you were talking, 
I thought about the listeners and challenging them right now. And so I, even though it may seem a little weird to say this right now, but we once thought the world was flat. We once thought women weren't as smart as men. There are so many ideas throughout history that we was created such an uproar. And so I ask and challenge the listeners, is this worth the uproar? Is this worth, worth it? And you said, Judge Friedman, we cannot pass this time. We cannot. This is a critical point in time. And it's not just about what's happening in our cities, in our, in our states. It's the nation. It's the world. And this moment has really created a, a ripple effect globally. And so look forward to seeing more and following up with you as time goes by and truth in action. Where, where is truth in action now? And what are the next steps that you want to see? So we're, we're in the process, which has taken longer than I ever thought would. Um, and, and the story collection, and um, we are hoping in um, the spring that we will have a gathering of the advisory committee to begin to bring the, these great minds together to look at the data and the stories and to come up with those action items initially focused on the two endpoints, law enforcement and reentry. Law enforcement, because as Kelly said, it is clear this is where it begins. The greatest disparities are in um, at the arrest level. They don't get appreciably worse as it moves through the system. They don't get better. But um, so we want to focus on that and then on reentry because it is going to take time for there to be change. We owe something to all those people who were swept into the system and are coming out the other end. And there's a lot that we need to do that to make that re-entry something so that it changes the truth. As I said, we owe it to the people who are in the system right now to figure out how to make those changes. And then we'll come back because um, as I have been told by many of my friends and colleagues, you can't do everything all at once. It is a process. <laughs> no, you can't. It is a process. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sharon, Judge Freeman, Kelly. It was such a pleasure to have you on ABA Resolutions. I just can't wait to see where this is going to be in a year or two, even if it takes the, another five years, Sharon. Good work does take time and change does not happen within an hour. So... <laughs> Thank we you, Carolyn, and thank you to my dear colleagues, uh, Judge Freeman and, and uh, Kelly Mitchell. This project would be nowhere without the two of you and uh, the other members of the advisory group. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Much appreciated. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you.